teachers that told me I never amount to nothing, to all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter, yeah, yeah, and to all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying, it's all good baby baby, check it, check it. it was all a dream, I used to read Word Up magazine, something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine, hanging pictures on my wall, every Saturday rap attack Mr. Magic Molly Mall, I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack With the hat to match Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard You never thought that hip-hop would take it this far Now I'm in the limelight cause I rhyme tight Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade Born sinner, the opposite of a winner Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner Peace to Ron G, Brucey B, Kid Capri Funk master flex, love bug star ski I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. All good. Good afternoon. Uh, this is a living. <laughs> this is a living writer show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. That was the Notorious B.I.G. And I'm Amanda Yuli, sitting in this summer as the living writer's host for T. Hetzel. And we are joined today by Mokhtar Alkanshali. Hello, Mokhtar. Hey, Amanda. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm excited that you're here. I should say, you're, you are here with us on the phone, um, joining us from San Francisco, I assume? Oakland, California. Oakland. Pardon me. And Oakland is where your Port of Mocha coffee company is based, right? Yes, it is. Perfect. Uh, Mokhtar is the subject of a recent book, a 2018 book by Dave Eggers called The Monk of Mocha. And we're going to talk to Mokhtar today um, in kind of a different format for the Living Writer Show. Um, normally, we talk to the authors of books, and we're going to talk today to the subject of the book. Um, so we're glad he's here. I'm going to read a little uh, bio about Mokhtar so that our listeners can sort of get to know you in a more formal way. Um, and then we'll hear from you. Um, I hope it's the short version. <laughs> you hope what? I hope it's the short version. Oh, I'm going to read the short version. Yeah, there's. I know Mokhtar has a very long bio, but I think I'm going to read a succinct version. He is a historian, community organizer, and coffee innovator. Mokhtar envisions a world where industry empowers rather than exploits and uplifts rather than represses. He grew up between Brooklyn, San Francisco, and Yemen. And he comes from an ancient lineage of coffee farmers that traces back to when the world's first coffee was cultivated in his home province of Ib, Yemen, over five centuries ago. Welcome, Mukhtar. Hey, I'm really, really, again, excited to be on the air with you. Thank you. How did that, um, did I miss anything? I clearly did, because I didn't read the long version of your bio. But <laughs> No, that's much better. And there's not much, I mean, to add to that. Thank you, though. Whoever wrote that did a great job. Whoever that was. Um, speaking of being written about, you have been written about in a book that was released um, this January uh, 2018 by Dave Eggers, our friend. Um, and the book is called The Monk of Mocha. Um, I wonder, for our listeners, Mokhtar, who have not picked up that book yet, if you want to sort of introduce that book and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Well, off of that, just for those listening out there, I am not the monk of Mocha. <laughs> Is that the first thing <laughs> um, that people ask you? Yeah, that, that 
that title belongs to a man who we should, we should all know and love, who is probably responsible for why coffee is where it is today, and his name is Chef, it was Chef Ali ibn Omar Ashazi. He lived in a city in Yemen called Mocha. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a port city, and it's actually where, where the name comes from. And um, what's, what is this book about? It's a good question. Uh, I get it's about asked you. a lot. <laughs> right. It, it, it's a biography about my, about, a bit about my life, you know, but it really is just a story of a kid who, you know, grew up on the wrong side of tracks and had big dreams. Um, and yeah, dreams that, especially in the times we live in today, it's hard to, to imagine what the American dream is or if it even exists. Um, one of the things that Dave always says and I really love is that the American dream is always alive, but it's constantly under threat. Mm-hmm. And so this book, I hope it's you know, a positive story of, of one of those American dreams. And it's about your life um, in San Francisco and then your travels to Yemen and the starting of your business, Port Mocha. Yeah, I grew up in between these two worlds. A lot of immigrants can relate Sometimes you kind of feel like you're between two different worlds, your families, you know, culture, and their, you know, what they what they feel is the way you should live your life. But then you you grow up in America and pop culture and hip hop and what you want to do, and so sometimes you don't feel like you belong in either world. Um, and so I felt that Kavi was this really incredible thing that was a way for me to bridge between my family's roots and living here in America. Well, you've certainly done that in your career. I mean, it, it seems to me as an observer of your work and, and as a reader of this book, um, that you have found this beautiful way to honor um, your roots and your family in Yemen, um, but you're at the same time doing a very American, entrepreneurial, uh, very modern thing in your business, which um, has been well recognized in the coffee industry and beyond, we should say, if people don't know that about Port of Mocha Coffee, um, which I wish that I had the foresight to brew some Port of Mocha Coffee to have this conversation, uh, <laughs> to have at my side during our conversation. Are you drinking a cup of coffee right now, Mokhtar? I have in front of me one of my coffees from a really beautiful roaster called Terra Mia Coffee, based here in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they have one of our lots that they just started to sell recently, so I bought a cup on the way to my back home. So I'm drinking that. It's pretty really interesting for me to like, uh, especially this coffee shop because it's the it's one of the cafes that I used to frequent when I first got into coffee, mm-hmm. and it's where I first learned how to like make a, po- a proper Chemex. You know, I used to build the baristas, and and to see this full circle now where my, it's my coffee that I'm drinking, it's really, it's just unbelievable that the journey in I think people listening out there, if you, the journey that coffee takes to get from a farm in Panama or Indonesia or Yemen, of all places, and the, the, the amount of effort and hands that touch your coffee, it's just a miraculous journey. And it's, it's amazing that it gets to, to us the way it does in this neat cup that we drink out now. I think that's one of the things, one of the points that Dave made so beautifully in the book is that um, cycle of, you know, how coffee gets to your cup and he I think approaches it with a sense of awe and instills that in the reader that um, coffee is not just this this casual thing uh, that you drink and that's how most Americans treat it it's like give me a cup of coffee and a lot of Americans as I'm sure you know put all kinds of 
other nonsense in their coffee. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, was, I was one of those people. You were? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really funny, but I'm going to make a little confession here. I think like six years ago, I didn't really drink coffee. <laughs> That's um, hard to believe. How did it, you? You know, it's like I, I'm like I go around the world and I, I do courses on you know coffee genetics and how we're going to change co- and all these things. But really, like I came out like you know like a lot of people were coffee was just coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was really bitter. Mm-hmm. You, know, just, you had to put cream and sugar just to make it drinkable, and you mostly used it for caffeine just to get you through the night for studying or late drives. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's one thing that, and even Dave, you know, uh, uh, he he mentioned this in the book that he was also a skeptic that anyone who thought too much of where the coffee came from and all this all these different things, which is you know, too pretentious. Um, and so for me, it was it was when I had my first real cup of coffee from a specialty coffee shop. It was a coffee from uh, Ethiopia, from an area called Yurgachefe naturally processed and i tasted it and it tasted well the cup was was five dollars which at that time i thought was really expensive for coffee right and um i i bought it and after i had my first few sips man it was just like this incredible flavor of blueberries and, and honeysuckle and the sweet lingering aftertaste i know a lot of people listening are like okay that doesn't sound like coffee but <laughs> when coffee's done right it does it has these incredible flavors and so then I realized, I started to, on this journey, you know, of trying to discover coffee. And in the process, found my family's connection in it and had this really crazy idea of trying to um, see if I can resurrect this ancient art or if I can, you know, bring it back to, to its glory. And you did. Trying um, to. Can you tell? Um, but yeah. I would love for you to tell our listeners a bit about um the process that coffee goes through. Um, I have been lucky enough myself, and I'm probably one of the few uh, who have seen uh, this coffee farm in the U.S., in California, around Santa Barbara, so I know about the coffee cherries and sort of what what coffee looks like at the beginning. Um, And it's so fascinating. When I learned that, um, I became a lot more interested, too, in sort of the process, and I know that you've had many such experiences. Could you tell about that process? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about coffee is that um, it's actually a, um, a fruit, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, this tropical fruit and that coffee beans, coffees are cherries from a, from a shrub that grows like a tree and it's handpicked. And in these cherries are these seeds, these two seeds. Those seeds are the coffee beans that, you know, we roast and, and grind and mm-hmm. dissolve in the water. And so um, it's a lot of people, that's the first kind of comment they tell me after reading the book, like, oh, I didn't know that coffee came from trees. I just thought it was this thing that popped out of the machine, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you, and you mentioned something about earlier about, about how Dave beautifully, um, how he beautifully described the journey coffee takes. And I could, like, tell you, you know, that this step-by-step, you know, technical process, but I think that, and if I, if I, if I may, I, there's this paragraph here that I would like, like I would like to read. Oh, please do. I have, I have the I have the book in front of me. And by the way, I don't I don't do a lot of book readings just because it's it's just awkward for me to read about myself in the third person. So <laughs> I don't. I imagine that. that is awkward, um, but I, we all understand, and I love that you want to read um, a bit. But this one is is because like 
And, and a lot of people in the coffee industry, this is the paragraph in the book that brings them to tears. You know, for us, it's why we do what we do. And sometimes it's hard for us to explain things to people and who are not in coffee and we can get too geeky. Mm-hmm. But Dave has an incredible, and they, this is why Dave is who he is. He's an incredible storyteller. He paints this, this beautiful, this beautiful picture with vivid strokes. Um, and he gives you this feeling of understanding something really uh, in, a, in a very deep way. So I'll just read it, and you guys can kind of go along this journey. He says here, um, Everywhere along the line, there are people involved, farmers who planted and monitored and cared for and pruned and fertilized their trees, pickers who walked among the rows of plants in the mountain's thin air taking the cherries, only the red cherries, placing them one by one in their buckets and baskets, workers who processed the cherries, most of the work done by hand, fingers removing the sticky mucilage from each bean. There were the humans who dried the beans, who turned them on the drying beds to make sure that they dried evenly. Then those who sorted the dried beans, the good beans, from the bad. Then the humans who bagged the sorted beans, bagged them in bags that kept them fresh, bags that retained the flavor without adding unwanted taste and aromas. The humans who tossed the bagged beans on trucks. The humans who took the bags off the trucks and put them into the containers and onto ships. The humans who took the beans from the ships and put them on different trucks. The humans who took the bags from the trucks and brought them into the roasteries in Tokyo, Chicago, and Triste. The humans who roasted each batch. The humans who packed smaller batches into smaller bags purchased by those who might want to grind and brew at home. Or the humans who did the grinding at the coffee shop and then painstakingly brewed and poured the coffee or espresso or cappuccino. Any given cup of coffee then might have been touched by 20 hands from farm to cup. Yet these cups only cost 2 or $3. Even a $4 cup of coffee was miraculous given how many people were involved and how much individual human attention and expertise was lavished on the beans dissolved in that $4 cup. So much human attention and expertise, in fact, that even at $4 a cup, chances were some person or many people or hundreds of people along the line were being taken, underpaid, exploited. Thank you for reading that, Mokhtar. That was a selection from The Monk of Mocha by Dave Eggers, read by the subject of the book, Mokhtar Akinshali. Um, how does it feel to have it, that kind of reverence, which we were just talking about, is I think the the approach that Dave took with the book, but how does it feel to have that uh, sort of reverence applied to the line of work that you have chosen and all of the humans that you have united in uh, this project of bringing Yemeni coffee to the U.S.? Um, I mean, I've never read that that chapter without getting emotional. You know, especially really being a part of the process from the beginning. You know, when this coffee in front of me right now in Oakland, California, was picked by a farmer named Hassan or his wife Fatima in this mountain village, northeastern Yemen, you know, some it's over 7,000 7, feet above sea level, right? Uh, people have no point of reference for, you know, Oakland. And this crazy journey, 
the, 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 the borders it crosses, the cultures, the political hardships. And every step along that route, any misguidance could ruin the quality. The way it was picked, it wasn't you know, picked ripe, it wasn't dried correctly, you know, if it was stored weird, if it wasn't shipped on the right time of the ship, it wasn't picked right, if it wasn't roasted correctly, a few seconds, either way, and roasting can ruin the quality. If the barista got a little lazy and put too much water or didn't cry, all these things have to be done at an expert level to produce this coffee the way it should be produced and to actually maintain the legacy of that farmer because in the end, you know, Amanda, we're just, like after the farmer, after he or she picks that coffee, there's nothing we can do to make this coffee better. We're just trying not to mess it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, it, I feel extremely honored to be to be, be able to have coffee, the story of coffee told this way. It's really honored. Well, it's sort of um, like the amazing experience that is more common than the one you're just describing, but it's pretty incredible when you get to, say, eat a meal in a restaurant and you know the chef. It's even more incredible if you know the farmer and you sort of know where the, the food came from. But to think about that kind of worldwide journey um, and talking about knowing uh, the farmers of the cup of coffee you're drinking is really powerful. We should know the farmers. And the we fact, should the all. Problem is yeah. When we don't know where our food comes from, that's a problem, you know, for many reasons, we, we you know, healthy-wise, we should know where our food comes from, but also, like, who are the people who are producing our food? How are they treated? How are they paid, you know, compensated? When we decide to go cheap on things, someone does pay consequence to that. Right. It's not and, us. And it's... in the case of coffee, we can literally change someone's life just by being more conscious about how we consume things. Absolutely. We're going to take a short music break. And then we'll be back to talk more. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We're speaking with Mokhtar Alkanshali. Here's a music break. That was Tell Me When to Go. We're speaking to Mukhtar Alkanshali. Tell me why you picked that song. If you have... I'm pretty sure that that must have been the first time that a lot of people heard that on your radio. Um, <laughs> Not, maybe. It's an eclectic um, It's an eclectic station. I haven't heard that song. So I, I tried to take songs in the, kind, of a, kind of a chronological timeline. Um, Walk us so through. That was, that the first one 
It was all uh, with the uh, Smalls. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn in Bedsty. Yeah. You know, do or die Bedsty. Where Biggie Smalls is from, and I grew up hearing, listening to him a lot. And those kind of songs, like uh, it's about you know ambition and dreaming big and reaching your dreams. And when you're a poor kid with not much going for you, all you have are dreams. And, you, and so I, that was, I really liked that song a lot. Then mm-hmm. uh, tell me when to go. It's a very Bay Area song. That is like my high school jam. <laughs> so it just takes me back to high school and all the um, the mischief that I had that I had committed. But your mischief is well chronicled in the Monk of Mocha, I would say. <laughs> How do you um, feel about I'm, that? I'm, I'm turning red right now. I'm getting, oh, um, it's radio, so it's very fine. hard for a brown man to blush. <laughs> So, um, how did your uh, did your parents read the parts about oh, in the gosh. book about the mischief <laughs> in the tenderloin you know, so when you were a teenager? The deal with Dave was, I, 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 if I'm going to tell the story, I have to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And so I told him my story, and he, you know, interviewed my friends and a lot of people who were involved in some of those <laughs> those, those uh, mischiefness and. Um, before the book was finally published, I had Dave meet all my friends and then all my family separately. You know, and I he mm-hmm. gave them each copy of the book. But, and when it was still in, you know, it was it wasn't in a book yet; it was just the pages. Wait, had, had you read? Give me the timeline. Had you read it, or was he giving I had it to read you, it. your friends first? And I was very nervous because I come from a very conservative family, you know, Muslim family, and the first sentence, the first word actually is about my ex-girlfriend yeah. you know not a muslim ex-girlfriend i had in high school very uh-huh. a great person and uh we're still good friends and and i uh i just kind of gave them the book and kind of walked away and said you know read it let me know what you think and you know you can you can hopefully change things here and there like you know um because the book i'm not i'm not you know i'm not perfect in the book it's and and i understand you know this no one's perfect, so I have to just be accurate. And believe it or not, Amanda, my, my parents, they actually loved the book. Um, they didn't have anything. They didn't work. They, didn't, they weren't. I, I thought they would be concerned with some of the things I did growing up. Uh-huh. Um, and also, you know, talking about poverty, kind of taboo in our culture, talking about, you know, going to, like, public housing and yeah, these kind of things. But they didn't. Well, I'm sure they're proud of you. I hope so. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about how the book came about? Um, were you a fan of Dave and his writing or uh, <laughs> or not yet when the uh, the idea of the book came together? Tell us I'm laughing story. because yes and no. I so, know part of this story, but I want you to tell it again. So I met Dave through um, one of my friends, May Al Hassan, she was in a PhD at USC, and uh, she knew she had a friend named Mujahat Ali. Mm-hmm. And Mujahat and Dave at the time were working on this script for a TV series, and the main character was a was a was a Yemeni police officer from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to make sure that it was it was an accurate portrayal of the Yemeni community. So they reached reached out to me and. I didn't know that Dave was this famous author. I mean, if you ever meet Dave, he's this simple, humble, low-key guy with this, you know, base, I think a giant baseball hat, probably with the pin behind it. 
keeping it from falling apart. Yep. You know, and these ruggedy boots. Uh-huh. I, I don't think he's ever been recognized in the streets. I don't, I, I, I would, and, and he has like no Wi-Fi in his house. He has a flip phone and he just, I actually, I actually saw that Wajaha was the famous person. Right. Which, you know, his way he is well, probably. he is. Wajaha is famous. Um, yeah. He's a great, great, you know, writer and, and, and um, well-known person. And so I helped out with that project. It ended up not going anywhere, and we just kept in contact. Uh, I, I had, I was working at a community center, and I had read um, Zaytun, the book Zaytun, which I love, and uh, a heartbreaking work, and I really love that book. But because of my like, accessibility to Dave, and how you know, I, I just text, he's close to me, I knew him, his email, and I didn't assume he was the famous person, especially the way he carried himself. Mm-hmm. Actually, a funny story. I remember one day in an airport, I think it was SFO, where I saw The Circle, his book, The Circle, there. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think I emailed him, or I was like, wow, like, you know, your book is in the airport. Congratulations. Like, something like that. <laughs> right. You know, in, in my head. And so I had no idea that, you know, years later, that book you made into a movie with, like, Tom Hanks and Milwaukee. Right. His and books so, are in airports so, a fair amount, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so then, when I um, when I um, came back from Yemen after escaping to this war and going through what I had to go through, he had heard about the Americans that were stuck there, and then Wajah had reached out to him and said, "Hey, did you hear about Hassan Mokhtar? He's one of those Americans that was stuck in Yemen." And so then Dave reached out to me, and, you know, and we met up with Blue Ball actually. It's like the first scene in the book, and, uh, and essentially, initially, I wasn't into the idea. I didn't see what he was going to write about, and I was going through a lot of personal issues, and I just escaped this war, and I was so going through a lot of trauma. Uh, but you know, I, eventually, like that's the thing. I think if it was any other person other than David, there's no way I could have been able to do this, to be able to like to be that vulnerable to someone who like really, really cares about you. You know, I've I've lived with him, I've traveled the world with him. He's an amazing person, you know, inside and out. His wife, and then her kids. And, you know, your story, your story is your most personal asset. And you got to be careful who you give that story to. Right. And so what was the process like? Uh, he interviewed you many times, right? It was pretty intense in the beginning. I mean, well, aside from him, like, he, he, I think writers are really unique because, you know, actors, they might learn about certain roles. You know, and they move on. But writers, they live that life for a long time. You know, they'll go and, like, for him to get into coffee, he had to go to coffee farms with me. He had to travel mm-hmm. to Ethiopia, to, to Yemen, to Djibouti. You know, it, just, it was really intense. And the first several months going through, like, hours and hours of interviews and, and transcribing them, recording them, and going through my life, you know, going through, like, yeah, some of the moments are pretty funny and hilarious, but a lot of the moments are really... Um, it was difficult to talk about and had to go through a lot of tissue paper. Yeah. You know, and Dave, of course, was very, like, sensitive and mindful. He would stop and, you know, he could carry on for a while. Um, and then him having to interview my friends and family. I think he said once that it was easier doing it with me, this book project, because I think I was his first millennial subject, and we have everything as millennials on social media. 
So I could go back in time to whatever day and look at the picture, what I ate, what I was wearing, you know. So <laughs> right. it was really easy for me to go to my Facebook and Instagram timeline to get all of the, the detail information. Yeah. Well, that's one of the questions I had for you, too, is that um, you have this, I think, very rare um, gift in that someone who is a professional writer, who is, we can say, very good at writing, has chronicled this part of your life in a really permanent way. Um, and, and not many people get that, right? Not many people have a, essentially a biography written about them. Um, but I wonder about your own chronicling of your life. Um, I know I know you from social media, and so I know that you use some of those things. Um, but do you also keep track of your life other ways, like with a journal? or? Yeah, you know... Um... When I started working in Yemen, I started to to do some journaling. Um, I still do that, and it helps to think about my mind state, how I thought about things. You know, I write poetry also, and just things I read don't share with much to anyone, just myself. Mm-hmm. And it does help a lot, even in the book process. In the beginning, uh, it was a little stressful, like the idea of someone, you know, writing a story about me and. And uh, it kind of felt like that, that movie, Stranger Than Fiction, and um, this guy up there, like, chronicling my life. But eventually I realized, you know, like, my story's already already been written. And this book is just like, it's a glimpse, a part of my life, it's not my whole life. Like, all my friends are not in this book, all you know. Amanda, right. you're not in this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm and, sorry, um, I'm not. <laughs> maybe the sequel. Okay. And um, We can talk about that. And, um, yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it's a part of my life, you know, I think Dave did a good job of, like, not making it just about me. I, I, the way I feel about it, it's, it's really a story of coffee. It's a beautiful, incredible, amazing thing, you know, told through my lens. I would agree. I, I mean, you, you're the human yeah. that allows the story of coffee to be told in this book. Um, but how do you, so you were, you were saying you kind of keep track of your life in various ways and you write things, so you write poetry and you do journaling and you keep track of what cups of coffee you've had on social media and what, uh, you know, via photos and things which are very different. But how does, um, how do you think the, the way Dave has portrayed this part of your life um, compares to how you would have done that or you have done that? Is it, is it the same or do you feel like it's a different vision? I think that what was really challenging with this book for Dave was no one had really written a coffee book other than the, you know, like the geeky coffee books, you know, mm-hmm. no one's written like a story about somebody through coffee. And he had to tell the story of coffee, the history of coffee, the economics, you know, the fair trade, direct trade and the global commodity of coffee. He had to tell this immigrant kid, American dream story, you know, and then he had to talk about global geopolitics of the, of the mm-hmm. Middle East. And it was a lot to do. And, and like, that's why, you know, no, it's, there's always someone who says, I wish the book talked about this more or that more. I would have loved it for it to talk about the history of coffee, probably, but people would probably fall asleep. But, because um, <laughs> there was a, I think one of the versions had like a hundred more pages or something. Yeah, I, I think that, that it did. I think and some of it came out. Um, but, but in terms of like my, my, how I saw myself, you know, I, I hope that people don't assume it's just like a superhero character, you know, and just like, I just talk my way out of things or where, you know, it's 
those are really serious moments in my life that I went through, and um, I'm very fortunate to be to be here where I am and do the work I'm doing, and I'm not without flaw. Um, it's much easier to like look back on things, um, and in the moment, it's more about survival, you know, as opposed to like being tough or I, I guess in difficult moments. I have this mechanism that kicks in that makes me kind of just deal with the situation very pragmatically. But how I see myself, like I, you know, I, I read it. I think the the, the parts about my childhood. Mm-hmm. This one chapter about the thing called the boy who stole books about my my library that I built in my mom's pantry kitchen. Because mm-hmm. books were how I escaped my like I grew up in a difficult reality. This neighborhood called the Tenderloin. And, you know, Dave Chappelle described it, and he said once, ain't nothing tender about that place. <laughs> Still true. Pretty rough. Pretty rough. Yeah. So just reading, reading that, that chapter particularly, like, brought me back to, like, my childhood, and I think that was really wonderful. Um, and I think that those parts about the farmers were really wonderful. Uh, you know, I wish I could have expanded more on that. But you, you're limited, you know. You can't write a yeah. book forever. Yeah. Yeah. We are speaking with Mokhtar Alkanshali. He is the subject of The Monk of Mocha by Dave Eggers. And I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today for The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I want to thank Frank, who's our engineer today. Um, and we're talking to Mokhtar uh, via phone. It's Thursday, July 19th. And uh, we're going to take a short music break and then be back. I want to talk more about the American dream aspect of this story and, of course, more about coffee. Grandma's hand clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands. Used to issue out a warning She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast Might fall on a piece of glass Might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand Eyes in Grandma's hands Soothe the local unwed mother And that was Bill Withers singing Grandma's Hands. Mokshar, you've chosen a very eclectic range of music for the Living Writers Show today. Thank you. Uh, it's just my my weird life and where it takes me. That's but, um, perfect. That song was... So my childhood in Brooklyn, then going to like the Bay Area, then get into too much trouble, then having to go to Yemen as sort of a, a boot camp. You were kind of I sent to Yemen, right? Is that is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, and and my grandmother definitely in her played a role in my life, and so I I always think of my grandma's Afran when I hear that song. Mm-hmm. How much of your childhood did you spend in Yemen? You were like eleven or twelve um, when you went. Is that true? I was twelve, right after eighth grade, and you know, and uh, I spent almost two years, a year and a half, from 
flew over there in Yemen the first time. And that was a huge shock for me because, like, all my life I grew up, you know, talking to hearing my parents talk about our home, our home back home, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes in the U.S., unfortunately, you don't feel like you're, you know, you belong here because you're being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Especially, the, you know, the certain times we live in now, very divided, um, which we'll probably get to in a bit. But when I went, when I went to Yemen, it just felt really awkward. You know, for one thing, they they, to- they didn't have toilets. They had these holes that they squat and use. And, and you're and a just, city you kid. Know, you, you've been in Brooklyn and San Francisco. So you've always had plumbing, right? I, I didn't know about, you know, a thorough poverty. Yeah. And I thought I had it. I thought I had a rough man. So when I got to Yemen, I saw the conditions of people and how like what they had and how happy they were and how content they were and how like it made me feel a little ashamed mm-hmm. and guilty about like the privilege I had, you know. And I and I, I the privilege you had in poverty in the United States. You're, yes, you're saying. you know, I still had opportunities to go to school and upper mobility, you know. And there's some still facets of that, and I I could still become something, and yeah, it was very um. It was very transformative for me. And then I went there in high school for a year, and I, a year after high school. I spent a lot, and those years that were really around my grandparents, my grandfather in particular, he's, he's like our family patriarch, and being around him, seeing the way he carried himself and the respect that people gave him, and it really just uh, it influenced me so much growing up. We, we mentioned, um, or you mentioned before, something that Dave has said about the American dream being constantly under threat. And that may be even more true today than it was when this book was written or, you know, when you were were doing what you were doing uh, to start your business. But I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and kind of what it means um, to pursue the American dream as someone who was not uh, necessarily born here. Although I know you were born here, right? Okay, so often, I mean, Dave has incredible gems that come out. That was one. The other one was, no one dreams harder. No one dreams the American dream harder than immigrants and the sons and daughters of immigrants. You know, and so um, I think that it's interesting. You also you mentioned that spoke when we first started it. Obama was in office, you know, and so we didn't did not think that, you know, the, you know the person who's in office now would be in office and we'd be mm-hmm. dealing with these, these kind of issues now. And the book in that sense is very timely. I think... Accidentally. I agree with David. Yes. I agree with you. I think that, that the American dream is something that is that is definitely possible and it's there, but it's under threat from people who try to use fear uh, as a way to take away our humanity and our, and our uh, under the guise of, you know, national homeland security or whatever you want to call it. They try to divide us and, and instill this kind of suspicion within, within each other when really we are so similar. We have, you know, we all want the same thing. And I like to envision a world where people, you know, build together, empower each other and make this something that's, you know, something that our kids and grandkids can be happy in. Yeah. Um, I, I was... We, we were talking before um, the show started about something that you did recently that made me laugh um, on a lighter subject. Um, going back to this concept of you being the subject of a book and what a remarkable and probably slightly disorienting experience that is. Um, will you tell our listeners the story about visiting a book club? <laughs> Would you be able to okay. do that? 
Okay, um, this is one of one of those awkward moments where a friend of mine sent me a, a, a Twitter about there's this book club, the San Francisco Bestsellers Book Club, and, and that month their book of choice was The Monk of Mocha, and so they were having a, a meeting, you know, to discuss the book. Yeah. And so at a at a Yemeni restaurant in, in my old neighborhood. Oh. And so I don't know. I think yes. I mean, if they had reached out to me, I would have. Gladly have come, you know. I don't know if they thought I was too busy or whatever, but <laughs> I thought, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to crash this thing. I'm going to crash this book club about my book. And I get there. I actually I remember on the on I was in an Uber going going there, and the Uber driver was asking where where was I going. I told him I'm going to this book club. He was like, okay, what's what's the book about? I said it's about my life, and he just gave me this weird stare. <laughs> and so. I, I right away felt awkward, and as I kept getting closer to the, I sat, as I walked in, I got, I got really just nervous for some reason. And I sat down, and nobody recognized me. Yeah. You well, know, your which, photo's not in the book. I mean, which, yeah, which you is know. you know typical. I, I, assume, I assumed that, but you know, I was I would assume that someone Google like the, the subject kind of you know Google image, but somebody so, Googled it. Yeah, you're on Google. Uh, or, or, or maybe they just didn't assume I was. I don't, I don't know, but I sat down. Uh huh. You know, I was the only, you know, I sat down there and um, and they began talking about the book. And it was really just, it was really positive things. Like, it was like, uh-huh. this book talked about this 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 old San Francisco that's kind of lost now and gentrified. And just those tech companies and different things. And about 15 minutes into this, I just felt horrible. I couldn't. So I was being deceitful. So I just told, I was like, hey, everyone, I have to be honest with y'all. I'm actually, an, I'm Mokhtar. And their eyes just like opened up, and they started laughing. And I'm sure um, they were immediately wondering if they'd said anything negative. Or... I mean, I told them, "Listen, be honest. Like, I didn't write the book, and I'm not mad." And uh, one of the one of the participants, I think she was the head. She she lives in the Hate Ashbury neighborhood, and she actually organized a petition uh, and blocked the city from giving permit for Blue Bottle one of the coffee shops we were from opening up a cafe mm-hmm. in her neighborhood. Yeah, they, they were very vocal. They had no problem. But she loved my story. She loved the, yeah. what we are doing. Yeah. But again, you're in this very interesting position of um, confronting uh, either actively, as you kind of did uh, at the book club crashing incident, or... Um, or just passively, um, the idea that strangers, lots and lots of people, thousands of people around the country and, of course, around the world um, are reading all about you. So that must sometimes, be... Sometimes it's okay. Like, I, I go to coffee shops and I pretend I know nothing about coffee and they explain to me and they're like, you know, there was someone, there was someone who would recognize me and like, you know, and, and, it's, and I get really nice messages from people who are inspired by the book, people who want to do some similar things and other... A person from like Haiti wants to do a special tea, or someone from Senegal, or someone from like wants to work in Mexico and Bruce who's chocolate. And so I like to make time for advice. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, for some people think I'm more than I am. I have like, you know, like I'm this gazillionaire who like, you know, this is a ridiculous life. I live in a one bedroom apartment in Oakland. Mm-hmm. I'm not like out here. You know, I work with poor farmers in Yemen. So, so that, that kind of part of it really like, you know, bothers me when people assume that I just have just from the book we read but it's not really my reality mm-hmm. you know there's not that much money in coffee in Yemen right um, but right and but it I think make me feel really happy when I see people who get inspired and send me really nice messages 
Well, that is great. And I, you know, I've seen, um, in your work, um, and in the way it's portrayed in the book, um, how much of a commitment you have to, um, farmers being paid fairly and how much, um, you have infused, even though your coffee is on the more expensive range of even specialty coffee, you have, um, helped to really make the process of coffee through all of those 20 hands that may come in contact with a cup of coffee before it's served much more equitable, um, which is part of, uh, the good work you're doing in the world. So, um, oh, thank you so much. I would love to talk, you know, we were talking a moment ago about Yemen and, um, I'd love your thoughts on, um, or I'd love you, you for you to tell us about how often you're able to go back now. Things have changed a lot in that country in the last a year even since the book has been published things are always changing do you um do you get to go back very often you know when i started this project i lived in yemen you know for like 10 months out of the year you know and and mm-hmm. so since the like after the book launch it took a i spent so much time on the book tour and like just trying to run this business here because for a long time when i was in yemen i loved living with these farmers and being that life it was simple but i had to in a way like i had to like have to leave and eventually sell this coffee for them right so trying to like you know figure that out and um well it's a it's continuation of your two world your, your sort of life of, of uh split between two worlds right yeah like one one journalist described me as a tribal bedouin hipster <laughs> and you know i don't know how to feel about that but yeah. i am um, it's hard going to Yemen. you know these days it's 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 easier than it was, I'd say, three years ago when the war was at its peak. Uh-huh. But it's still, you know, a, a open war zone with active airstrikes and military campaigns and multiple fronts and all these things happening. But it also reminds me that this is like more the reason why I need to do the work I'm doing. There's people who really just, they absolutely rely on me for their families, for their, you know, most of them have lost their businesses in the cities. A lot of the economic infrastructure has been destroyed. And so they're going back to villages and this is one of the very few ways they can get money back to the country. Um, and so I try to go, I'm, I'm hoping to go soon in, like in, in the early part of the next, in the next harvest that happens mostly from November to January. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's always an incredible like, feeling going back there and you know, bringing back bags of roasted coffees from the different cafes from around the world, you know, Tokyo and Paris and Bushwick and Ann Arbor that have their coffee. <laughs> I don't have anyone in Ann Arbor yet. But, uh, you do. You'll, you'll be here soon. I hope. Yeah. Um, anthology coffee in Detroit, which you guys should check out. Oh, anthology is wonderful. Yeah. Are cafe. you doing something with them? Is that? Is we're that eventually going to do something. We're, we're, the owner is incredible. I, I love the work they do there, and really, they they love the whole process. Anyone listening should go check that cafe out. There's also a cafe in um, Dearborn called um, Kahwa House. Q A H W H, and it's, it's owned by Yemeni, who was an incredible um, entrepreneur, and he it's a really welcome and beautiful traditional kind of like types of beverages they sell there, and you should check it out too. Yes, our listeners should check out. Now, I, I hope everyone that's listening has a great uh, thirst and desire for coffee after this conversation. I feel like the book I do. really comes to life when you're the more caffeinated you are. Uh- Oh, is that right? Yeah, if you drink Yemeni coffee, it really, like, it's, it it's works. a different experience. <laughs> it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, I think we're going to do one more um, 
quick music break. And then um, I want to talk to you about uh, something that's been written quite a bit about, uh, which is your sort of most famous escape uh, from Yemen on one of your trips, which really kicked things off. So I hope you will tell us that story after this music break. Mokhtar Alkanshali, the subject of The Monk of Mocha, is joining us today on The Living Writer Show. Um, and was that some traditional Yemeni music, Mokhtar? Yes, that was uh, an uh, artist named Fuad Al-Kipsi. And it's a song called I Long for Sana, the uh. capital of Yemen. And that song invokes a lot of memories of driving down these beautiful roads, windy roads up and down mountains, overlooking these beautiful lush valleys and these terraces with villages on top. And um, it's hard to explain, but I think music is such a powerful tool. I, I now understand why you chose to ask me to pick personal songs. It kind of helps, I think, when we're talking about um, our lives and, and books. You know, it's um, music evokes things um, in a special way. And you clearly have, you're so um, understandably fond of and connected to Yemen. Um, I can only imagine um, how frightening and, and how painful it must have been when you were forced to leave. Uh, and what year was that? Your, your escape? 2015. 2015. April you, 2015. Can you tell a little bit about that story? I know you, you mentioned before you didn't want to seem, you didn't want to be conveyed in the book as like an action-adventure hero or something. I think I wrote that down correctly, but um, I think part of the book reads very much like um, there's a superhero, and it's you. <laughs> no. Um, when, when we started the, the writing process, Dave had the foresight to start backwards. Mm-hmm. So if you read the book, the last third of the book is really intense because I was literally just a few weeks after I went through all those ordeals talking to Dave about this, you know. And so going backwards, that's why a lot of the, the, the parts of that book is very vivid. Um, a lot of those things are hard for me to talk about. And I won't probably won't be able to, but there's something that I can talk about. But essentially, you know, things in Yemen kept the war kept escalating. And we came. It just kept getting worse and worse. Um, and at one point, I had reached a, a climax where I had worked with these farmers, and I promised them something. And you know, I was going to go to this big coffee conference in Seattle. Um, and right before I was supposed to leave, this war breaks out. The airports are bombed. The ocean ports are bombed. There's no way in or out the country. 
and our government, the U.S. government, decided not to evacuate its own citizens. Um, we even had this website, stuckinyemen.org, <laughs> over 600 people signed up. So it was very sad to feel abandoned by your own government. And then knowing that, you know, these bombs were being made here and my tax dollars and yeah. those airstrikes were logistical support and refueling were by, by our government. Um, and I had this huge weight on my shoulders. This, this, I had promised people something. They looked at me with those eyes and they saw hope and, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't go against that. Um, because they've asked me for a long time, for like a year, Dave couldn't understand this part of the story. Like, why did you risk your life to go to a coffee conference? <laughs> you know? And I just kept telling him, well, because I had to go to the coffee conference. Because it was, well, why, well, next week. And, uh, it's a very deep thing for me. And so trying to leave, I, I, it's, you know, it's a very difficult part to go through. But I tried to leave through one port in the south called uh, Aden. Mm-hmm. And I was detained and kidnapped and blindfolded and put into a, a jail cell. And it's really difficult for me to go into details. You can read that part and what I have to go through. Um, but in that process, I heard about the port of Mocha and how there were small shipments leaving from there across Somalia. And uh, I had this idea, like, what if I just go to the port? But this whole story of Kaka began, and I went down there, and, you know, and my escape was another story, but I made it over there, and um, I took this small boat ride. It was a small little dinghy with a 40-horsepower Yamaha on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and we were supposed to take this little little boat across the Red Sea to go to Africa. And we hear these stories of refugees from Syria or East Africa or Libya. And there are these horrific scenes of bodies washed a lot on, on shore in Italy or in Greece. Um, the poet Orson Shire, you know, once said that no one leaves land to go to the ocean unless the whole city is fleeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I didn't have many options, and so I took that risk and that leap of faith and took my coffee samples and jumped on that boat. You know, and that was a really difficult experience, but that was definitely a turning point in my life, the lowest and lowest point, but it was definitely my, you can say, comeback. From mm-hmm. there, across to Djibouti, I actually made it across that Red Sea, and then to Kenya. We flew to Kenya, then I made it to Amsterdam, and I called my mother. And I told her what happened, the boat, the whole... I didn't tell anyone the whole... Because by that time, I had sent my parents three or four messages as if it was my last message. Right. You know, and that's very hard to write, to, to write to your loved ones and and not know if they would read something else from you. Right. Um, so I just didn't tell them this last attempt. Um, and then I made it to Amsterdam and I called my mother. And I remember I told her um, about the boat ride and what had happened. And she was just really emotional. And she asked me, did you make it? I said, no, Ma, I died. <laughs> like, I'm talk- talking to no. you on the phone. Like, you know, and then I made it. And then, you know, the rest is history, you can say. I, made, I actually made it two days before the conference. I, I made it to Seattle for this conference. And That's the most incredible heard, part. Yeah. Like the, 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 the surrealist part probably was when I was in this Uber 
listening to myself from the airport going to the conference in Seattle and hearing myself on it was NPR or BBC, the radio. <laughs> and then the Uber driver was like, man, this guy, he's doing a really incredible work helping these farmers in, his, in Yemen, but he's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, you were in that situation and you had, um, you had two very real threats. Um, you had, you were afraid for your life just being there and you needed to escape. But then, um, you also had so much on the line with all of the farmers, um, that you had made promises to and all of your commitments and this dream, your American dream to open Port of Mocha Coffee. So, um, that's the part of the exciting ending to The Monk of Mocha by Dave Eggers. We are yeah, lucky. Like For a long time, we didn't have a happy ending. You know, this is the idea of a kid who had a dream that got deferred. But then <laughs> along, the, along the writing path with Dave and I, you know, nine months into it, things took an amazing turn, and you guys will find out about Oh, yes. Never give the ending. We don't, we don't do that on the Living Writers Show. I'm not going to tell you guys if, if I make it or not. Guys, you know. Readers will have to guess. Readers, listeners will yeah. have to go uh, find the book um, and find out whatever happened to Mokhtar Alkanshali. Thank you so much for and sharing your, your story with us today, Mokhtar. It was, um, it was an beautiful. honor, and I'm so glad I did this. Oh, I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about um, all of this. And um, I th- it, this might be a first for the Living Writer Show to speak to the subject of a book rather than its author. I'm not sure. I'll have to dig in the archives, but um, I think it was really beautiful to, to know more about what it's like to be, to have a book well, written you so about having. you. You're welcome. You know, usually I close the show and I ask writers um, to, to provide advice um, to other writers, to, to young writers or, or writers who are just getting started. And I wonder if you might do something a little different. Um, maybe you have some advice for people just getting started out um, in business or in uh, philanthropy and the other good work that you do. Do you have a parting words? Or just in life. I, I or mean, life. I advice, but I would say just try to find your calling, not a, not a career, right? You know, yeah. and, and when you find just that, that why that makes you fulfilled, which is oftentimes has nothing to do with money, by the way, when you find your purpose and your, your, your um, sense of the, your path, it is incredibly rewarding and wonderful. And I'm very fortunate to have found that early on in my life. Try to find your why and try to find that path. And if you stick true to that, everything, I know it sounds cliche, but everything does fall in place. Thank you, Mukhtar Alkanshali. Uh, this is The Living Writer Show. I'm Amanda Yuli. I've been sitting in for T. Hetzel today. Um, we're going to close the show with Mukhtar's last music selection. It's by Drake. Fittingly, he's, he's gone all over the map with his music, which we appreciate. Um, and we hope... I heard on the way to the boat. Oh. oh, I should have given you a chance. Please explain. This is the song you heard in Yemen? I was I just down, I had the song down on my iPhone, and I was listening to this just as I was going to the boat to escape. I didn't know that. Very personal song for me. And it, some, of the, some of the lyrics are very powerful. If you hear like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm gone. I don't want to miss my boat. I'm afraid I might die before I get to where I'm going. It was very like interesting. But. Well, we'll hear it now. And people should probably Google um, you and find that selfie you took with so much forethought, the selfie of you on the boat making your escape across the Red Sea. Here's Drake. A millennial for you. <laughs> Thank you, Mokhtar. Thanks, Mokhtar.
It's over, it's over, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm gone. I can't stay here no more, and I can't sleep on the floor. Man, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, you know I got my reasons. Yeah, I'm leaving, yeah, I'm leaving, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm gone, I'm leaving, I'm gone. Had to knock down the wall, yeah, I swear to God that I'm gone. I'm leaving. I'm leaving, no looking back when I'm gone, no looking back when I'm gone, no more, 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 yes over, yes over. Yeah, I'm leaving, I'm gone, I've been doing this wrong, I've been here for too long, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, you know I got my reasons, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm gone, I'm leaving, I'm gone, I don't wanna miss the board, I don't wanna sit in coach, I don't wanna sit at home, I gotta get where I'm going, I'm afraid that I'm gonna die before I get where I'm going. Get ready to move your ass. Are you out of shape? Are you under stress? Do you wish you weighed a Wake up just feeling blue Do you feel so tired the whole 